If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd want you to look with me in Romans chapter 5 today. We're going to start this new chapter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read those verses in just a few moments. But wanted to remind you of the reality that going through the book of Romans together means that we are on a big journey. And it's a journey that is going to stretch us in all kinds of ways. And today we come to one of those moments in a journey, if you want to think of it as rock climbing or going on a, a, a long hike, we come to one of those vistas where we get to look out and see the beautiful, amazing landscape and grandeur of God's creation. Romans 5 is one of those passages where I'm going to read this to you and then we just need to take it in. This, this passage is so glorious and amazing. And so this is going to stretch you in some ways to think about how good and gracious God is. It's going to stretch you to think about how great our sin is, but yet the reality that Jesus' redemption is even more powerful than our sin. Um, So listen to this. I'm going to read Romans 5, 1 through 11. This is God's word. You can bank your entire life on it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Not bad, huh? Things are downhill from there. So let's pray and then get into these words and see if we can understand. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be in your presence. Holy Spirit, thank you for leading us to come and worship. There are all kinds of other places we could be today. But you have worked in us to prioritize being in your house with your people to learn and to grow, to worship. We thank you, Jesus, that you are living, that you are alive, that you are praying for us, that you are working even now to spread your glory and spread the good news of the gospel all over the world like you've been doing for the last 2,000 years. So remind us that we aren't here in this place to learn how to be good or to learn how to be better We're not here because you give us a list of things that we have to work on so that we can try to get your favor or try to keep your love or get more of it. Remind us that we're here 
to be refreshed with your good news. That we are here to be transformed, we're here to be changed, we're here to be made into the likeness of you, Jesus, our Savior. So Holy Spirit, activate our hearts, activate our minds, activate our wills, change us, encourage us, challenge us, do whatever it is that you need to do to us so that we might see that you, Jesus, are more beautiful and believable, eternally trustworthy, so that we might relish our time in relationship with you. Again, we pray in your name, amen. If I were to ask you the question, what is it that you need more of in your life? What would you say? Think about that. Not asking you to verbally respond this time, but just think about, if, you were, if I were to ask you the question, if the question were to put to you, what is it that you need more of in your life? What would you say? What comes to your mind? Maybe you might think of things like, well, I just need a better job, or need more money, or need more of this. And, and once you move past some of those superficial things, because you can find out, even though it may be true, you may need a new job, a better job, maybe you need some more money, that may all be true, but you might also be able to push through those things and realize that at the end of the day, they're really not going to improve your life that much, not as much as you think they might. What is it that you really think you need to make your life better? My guess is that there are very few in this room who would say, I need more peace in my life. And yet, we are an anxious people. We are a people that worry all the time, aren't we? If we were to do some reflection on our own lives, wouldn't we think that most of our decisions are motivated by guilt? Meaning we make decisions because we feel guilty about something? especially when it comes to relationships? Or another gigantic motivating factor in our lives is not just guilt, but you know, like shame? Do you ever have these thoughts that swirl around in your head? If I just did blank, my life would be better. If I didn't do blank, my life would be better. You ever have those thoughts that swirl around your head? Do you ever think at the end of the day or maybe in the middle of the day, well, at least I have done this or that? Those thoughts go through your head? All of those things indicate in very clear ways that just below the surface of our lives is an awful lot of unrest. There's an awful lot of discontent. We lack peace. We lack peace in the center of our being. And because of that, we have a tendency to worry and be anxious. We have a tendency to be motivated by guilt and what we think we don't have rather than being motivated to live from the fullness of who Jesus is for us. This text this morning, verses 1 through 11 of Romans 5, is all about peace. God is trying to get this idea and get this concept and get this truth deep within us that there is peace with God. Because of what Jesus has done, there is real peace 
in our lives. And if we will receive that and recognize that and live by that, we will be a different kind of people. We will be able to fight against worry and anxiety. And we'll be able to fight against being motivated by guilt or shame all the time. And we'll, just, we'll be free. Free to live the way God wants us to live. So these verses are all about the peace of God. That's the big concept. Peace. And we're going to make two little stops on these verses. Peace forever and peace now. That's where we're headed this morning. We're going to talk about peace forever, and we're going to talk about peace now. You got me? Make some kind of sense? You all still thinking about what you think you need more? Let's start with peace forever. Look where the Apostle Paul, look where God ends this section, verses 9 through 11. Look where we end up. If you notice those verses and you like to take notes, I want you to notice some phrases in verses 9 through 11 that ramp up what Paul's saying. Much more. Much more. More than this. The Apostle Paul is trying to get into our minds what our future is. What our forever future is going to be. And he does that by arguing with us, if you will. He does that by pressing on us what has happened and then helping us to think about there's more, much more. In other words, look where verse 9 starts. Having been justified by what Jesus has done for us, we are now even free from the wrath of God. And, and just to be clear, the first chapters of this book have been talking about being justified before God, and they have been dealing with the wrath of God. Chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, starts off by talking about the wrath of God is currently revealed. And then in chapter 3, that Jesus has come to soak up and absorb that wrath of God that we justly deserve. So when the Apostle Paul says in verse 9 that not only we've been justified by faith, but we also don't have to worry about God's wrath, he's talking about the future. Because God's wrath has already been soaked up by Jesus and what Jesus has done on the cross and through the empty tomb. So Paul's trying to get us to say, look, if, if you are justified before God and, and God's wrath is soaked up for you, then the ultimate day, the final day, the day of final judgment, it's going to be amazing for you. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of judgment is going to be glorious and you ought to look forward to it. And then look at verse 10. Here's another much more than. He says, look, if God died for us while we were his enemies, how much more will he do for us when he's alive? He's trying to get into our minds and our hearts and say, do you understand what Jesus has done for you? He died for you while you were his enemy. And his death secured your redemption. But now he's alive. If he accomplished your redemption when he's dead, what do you think he can do for you now that he's alive? Do you feel that? If Jesus secured your redemption through his death, now he's, oh, now he's alive. And he's praying for you. He's orchestrating everything in history for the good of his church and the glory of the triune God. How much more can he do for you now? And then he ends up in verse 11 by telling us, oh, more than this, we are going to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we will have, on that time, we will have complete reconciliation. What he's getting at in verse 11 is this, 
the day is coming in which we will rejoice in God. Now we rejoice in God now, it's true. But there's a day coming in which we will really rejoice in God. It will be the time in which God is all in all. And the reconciliation that we have, uh, that has been stated for us because of what Christ has done will be experienced to the fullest comprehensive, most comprehensive sense possible. So that we will rejoice one day in God because we will see that he has done everything and that all things will redound to his glory. Beloved, that day is coming. That is your forever future. Does that get you excited? Can, can you see how this idea of peace with God like means something? That if Jesus did all these things for you, you have peace with God. And one day you will rejoice like never before. And let's, let's just press into that a little bit more. You remember the day is coming in which heaven and earth will be reunited, right? The day is coming in which God will dwell with man. And on that day, when we have been given new bodies and we are living on the new heavens and the new earth, we will look around and we will take a deep breath. And as we look around, my hunch is that we will say something like, I'm home. I'm finally here. That this is everything that God has been telling me. And that forever and ever and ever, I'm home. I, I belong here. Because there's no more friction. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more rebellion. There's no more miscommunications. We're home. That's what God is describing for us is our future in verses 9 through 11. We have this peace with God and it, it, it fundamentally changes our future. So no matter what your future looks like on a daily, day, daily basis or a week out or a month out, whether you think you need a better job or a little bit more money or this friend or that friend or whatever it is, God's saying this is what you need to be thinking about. He'll work out all the other details. He'll work out all the other details. And because our future is full of peace, that means we have peace now. That's the other verses in this chapter, in, these, in verse 1 through 11. We have peace now. Now. Look at verse 1. Having been, since we have been justified by faith, he states it explicitly. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Paul is saying, therefore, in light of everything I've said in the first four chapters, in light of everything I've said in the first four chapters, because of what Jesus has done, you have peace with God now, today. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put on Christ, if you have received all that he is for you, you have peace with God. And, and this is not the subjective kind. You may not even feel it. And if you'll allow me to say, it doesn't matter. Now, please allow me to quickly say, it does matter how you feel. It does matter because we all should want to experience the love of God more and more. Absolutely true. But that is not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the objective reality that God says, we good? We good? Because of what Jesus has done, we're good. We're good. That means that when you in your mind think, well, 
God must not love me because I've done this. Wrong. That means if the image of your, in your mind is of uh, a displeased father who's up there just crossing his arms looking, just shaking his head, just in whatever expression of disappointment, you're wrong. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is peace between you and God. And there are days in which you're going to feel that and there are days in which you might not. It doesn't change the fact that God says that we're good. All because of what Christ has done. Can you take that in? That should fundamentally change how you approach every person, everything at work, every distraction, every hardship. It should fundamentally change everything about, everything about you, everything. To know that God is at peace with you should free you to be who you are and who he has made you to be and who he is working in you to become because you belong to him. That means, look at verse two, that it's not just that we have this peace with God now, it's because of this peace that we actually have access into this grace in which we stand. So because God is good with us, he continues to lavish us with grace so that we literally stand in this grace, meaning that we live by grace. So that as God's grace has transformed us and enabled us to see how beautiful Jesus is, the grace of God gives us power to live every day, to trust him, to obey him, to follow him. Not because again and again and again we're trying to get his favor or keep it, but because we have it. We want to obey and follow him and love him because he has first loved us in all of our obedience, in all of our trusting him, in all of our following him, is just our response to what he has done and is doing in us. So we have access to grace. We have access to this amazing power of God because grace is a person. It's Jesus. And because of that, we can live our lives every day by grace. We can make decisions of obedience by grace, not by deficit in us, but from fullness of Jesus. And that's why we get to rejoice. Isn't that what's said in verse two? By faith, uh, obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, he's already in verse two pointing us to verse nine through 11. That's why I want to go to nine to 11 first. Because he's saying you're standing in this grace that you're gonna to experience to the fullest capacity in the age to come. And you get to rejoice in that. That all of us have a glorious future that will not disappoint. Beloved, eye has not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. That means as tangible and as practical as God's promises are to you, it is a shadow of what we'll experience one day. Don't you think we should be excited about that? Don't you think that we, we can you rejoice in that? Can you rejoice in the fact that God is that good? Then look at verses three through five. There's another reason why we rejoice. 
We can even rejoice in suffering. You see that? It's right there. Not only because of the access we have to stand in the grace of God that causes us to rejoice in what is in the future, standing and having access to the grace of God and standing in the grace of God, living by grace, means that we can even rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in suffering? That sounds strange, doesn't it? When I was in seminary, I worked at a glue factory. And I wanna give you a little snapshot of the assembly line. So in the glue factory, it was a, it was a two-store building. And the, and the glue was made on the top floor, on the second floor, and then the glue that we made came out on the first floor. So when glue came out on the bottom floor, what happened is it oftentimes was, uh, was uh, drained into trays, we'll say big trays. And those trays then were floating in water to cool off the glue because it was so hot. And then eventually those trays would make it to a long line of metal rolling pins. And the trays would roll down the assembly line. And then it would turn around a corner and there would be someone there who would take those trays that had not so hot glue anymore and, and bang out the glue in those trays. And then someone else would take the glue off that assembly line and they would put it into a box. And then someone else would weigh the box, close the box, weigh the box, and someone else would stack the box. And then someone else would take a forklift and take that box and put it on the back of a truck. And then we distributed to the customer. As a snapshot of what it was like to see the whole operation come together. Now, I wanna give you a snapshot of what happens here in verses three through five when God talks about us rejoicing in our suffering. And to give you a snapshot, I wanna to mash together Romans five with James one because we spent some time in James one last fall and I'm hoping you might remember this a little bit and if not, it's fine, it's okay. But these two passages together give us a little snapshot of what God says when he says that we can actually rejoice in suffering. So here goes. So as we live in a broken world, and because we're sinful people ourselves, we are going to endure a lot of trials. Trials are those things that are outside of us, that come into us, and because of the pressure of those trials, they actually crack us open. And in cracking us open, what that means is that we come to the end of ourselves. And what that means is that in coming to the end of ourselves, we start thinking about, ooh, so this is what I think life should be. And this is what life actually is. And I don't have the resources in and of myself to make it through this trial, to endure this suffering. And it's at this point that you can either become an incredibly hard person, bitter, angry, frustrated, gonna take out your frustrations on other people, or in being cracked open what actually can happen, and when you come to the end of yourself, what can actually happen is that the grace of God is actually working, and you realize that. So that getting cracked open in your life is just another example of you realizing and me realizing that you can't save yourself. And God has to bring us to the end of ourselves, and oftentimes that happens through trials and suffering. And what he's doing in the midst of being cracked open, realizing we've got nothing, 
is that he is working into us, look at Romans 5, 3 through 5, endurance. He is working into us character. He is working into us hope. So that by standing in the grace of God every day, including those times we go through trials and suffering, what God is doing is he is working into us endurance, single-mindedness, in which we understand and come to a fresh realization of what is most important. And oftentimes that doesn't happen until we become radically uncomfortable. And not only does he focus our minds on what's most important, he produces character which means that we are becoming confident through our experience, and our confidence is not in ourselves, it is in, our confidence is in God. And then, as we are growing in endurance and growing in character, we begin to realize hope in deeper ways because we've come to the end of ourselves, and we've realized that we are not as focused on what matters more than anything else as we thought we were. And it's in that that God begins to work into us the deeper reality of hope. That our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the power of God. So that what is happening in all of this is that we are maturing. We're growing. Even though at times it sucks. I can tell you from experience. It's not fun to go through these things. Still isn't. But guess what? God's doing something in my life that I would never choose and I would never do to myself and I would never know how to get out of and never know how to grow from. But he's doing it. It's what he does. God is saying this peace is so powerful that it gives you access to grace. And that grace leads you to rejoice even in your suffering. And if you want to know, well, how in the world can we actually rejoice in our suffering, knowing this assembly line has taken place, that we're going from stage to stage to stage, how can that happen? Look at verse 5. Because the Holy Spirit is pouring the love of the Father into our hearts. See that? So while we're going through suffering and trials and when we're being cracked open and when we're learning how to endure and when God is deepening and expanding our character and when we're experiencing deeper ex expressions of hope, God, is, his love is taking over in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a donation from the Father and the Son. He's been donated to us. And the Holy Spirit works in us so that we will experience the love of God. And the love of God will come into our lives, into those moments we're experiencing trials and suffering, and that love of God will begin to take control. So that as we're realizing that we have less and less control, as we realize that we think we have control, but it's an illusion, we get to experience the fact that God is in control. And his love is not only controlling us, but his love is animating us. His love is moving us forward along the lines of our lives. God is doing all of this because his love for us is irreversible. When he has set his love upon us, it doesn't go away. It doesn't fluctuate. It, it's not sporadic. It's real and constant and only gets better and better and better the more we understand it. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us as we are going through trials and as we suffer. The love of God becomes more and more real to us. And it means that we turn from being, we realize how self-centered we actually are and begin to think about others and begin to reflect more of the love that we are experiencing from God. That means that in our lives we begin to experience things like hearing the truth and realizing, wow, didn't our hearts burn within us as we heard truth? It means that in our lives we have this growing sense of saying, I am more and more persuaded that God is able to keep what I have committed until that day. That the love of God is constraining and compelling so that I have to love people that are my enemies. And apparently, I'm sure there are other ways that God can work all these things into me, but it seems like trials and suffering is a way that is very effective in God's economy. Not what I would have chosen. Probably not what you have chosen either. And that all leads us to this. Look at verses six through eight. How do we know that this love of God is so deep? How, how do we know that our hope is that comprehensive, that it encompasses our forever future? How, how can we know that this peace with God is that profound and needed in our lives? Verse six through eight tells us why all of it's guaranteed. The hope is guaranteed, the love of God is guaranteed, changing is guaranteed, it's all guaranteed because of verses six through eight. Listen to these verses again. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do, do you sense what Paul's saying here? Like you can look out all over the world and you might realize, oh, you know, well, for a righteous person, one would scarcely die for them. For a good person, maybe someone would dare to die. But God died for us when we were his enemies, when we were still sinning against him. He didn't die for good people. He didn't die for righteous people. He died for his enemies. While we were rebelling, in the middle of rebelling against him, that's when he died for us. There is hardly anything more intense, more dramatic, and more compelling than someone dying in the place for someone else. You know that? Gladiator. Braveheart. End game. All these things are, and so many more that I could list, are built around this idea of someone substituting for someone else. 
But here, God substitutes for enemies who are actively rebelling against him. God was saving us while we were crucifying. Can you take that in? That is incredible to think about. That's the kind of God who is the God of the scriptures. That's the real God of the universe. We're not good people that just need a little help. We were actively rebelling against him in our thoughts and in our words and our deeds. And he saved us. There is a British author that summarized the message of sin and the gospel in this way. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God. And the gospel is that God substitutes himself for us. Isn't that beautiful? If you wanna know what it means, if you're exploring Christianity, don't know anything about Christianity or thinking about it, maybe you're not at all, I don't know. If you heard Christians talk about sin before, or whatever, here it is. This is what sin is. When you substitute yourself for God. Let's just work that out quickly. Substituting ourselves for God means that whenever we are thinking about our own lives and we're making decisions about our lives, the most important person that we consult and the person that carries the most weight is self. That's how we substitute ourselves for God. We consider our, our, what we want as more important than anything that anyone else says. Meaning, you decide what you're gonna do with your body. Meaning, you decide what you're gonna do with your time. Meaning, you decide what you're gonna do with your money. Meaning, you decide what value you place on your career. Meaning, you decide how you are gonna use your skills and your gifts to serve yourself. It means that you have substituted yourself for God because God is the one who has defined what we can do with our bodies, what we're supposed to do with our money, what we're supposed to do with our skills, how much value we're supposed to put in our career. He's late, he's done all that. So anytime we decide to, at the end of the day, we're just gonna consult ourselves, we are correctly sinning. We are correctly substituting ourselves for God. That's what it means. But what God has done is he has substituted himself for us. This is what Jesus has done. That means that you might hear that. God substituted himself for us. And you might think to yourself, that sounds horrible. That sounds outdated. That sounds old. That sounds Jurassic. That God, you would think that God would, would sacrifice his own son? That sounds horrible. Well, let me tell you this little story. This is as far as I can go in trying to explain this to you. So I, was with, I went to visit my parents. Well, I was with my parents when my dad had his heart transplant, and then I went back to visit my parents uh, some weeks after that, just you know, recovery-wise and whatnot. And I remember being at home with my parents after my dad's heart transplant, and I got the mail one day, and my dad got his first bill 
for the heart transplant. And if I remember correctly, I opened up the letter and I unfolded it and it said $480,000. Now, just so you know, I don't quite have that in my checking account. Not even close. $480,000? What? Now, what if that very same day I flipped through some other letters and I opened up another letter and in that letter was a check for $480,000. And what if I looked at that check and I thought to myself, I can't stand thinking about this. this. This makes me feel horrible about myself. This makes me feel like I'm broken. This makes me feel like I'm, I'm no good. It's just, this is just really, really uncomfortable for me to think about $480,000, what? I don't even want to think about that. That's one option. Here's another one. What? Someone sent a check for the exact amount that we owed? You glory in that. You rejoice in that. You weren't expecting it and someone provided for you. Someone is, is caring for you and someone is, has done what you didn't even know needed to be done and they've done it all. You glory in that. Yes, that number can make you feel rather small. That number can make you feel uncomfortable. And it should. The death of Jesus should make all of us feel small and rebellious and dirty. It should. And it is our glory that Jesus would do this when we were actively in the act of rebelling. Beloved, the greater the number, the greater the number, the greater the glorying. Does that make sense? If that bill had been $2 million and I got a $2 million check, I would have been even glorying even more. Jesus has paid everything. In other words, Jesus wrote the check with his own life so that we would have peace with God, so that we would live as if God is at peace with us, so that we would strive to be at peace with one another, so, so that we would be agents of peace in the world, not fighting, not arguing, peace, so that we would live by the good news that has been so impactful in our lives.